You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall in New York City. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. Now, John, I know that you recently came back from a trip to Kenya and Uganda, where you saw lots of great mammal species. But today, we're not going to talk about that. And instead, we're going to dive straight into the interview with our guest. Now, concerning our guest, if you were to put a group of professional conservation biologists in a room, these being the sort of people who have dedicated their lives to protecting wildlife, who have worked in lots of unforgiving countries, and who are very clear-eyed about what constitutes good, effective conservation. And you ask them, who has been the most important figure in wildlife conservation and field research in the past 50 years? One name, almost always, rises to the top. And that name is George Schaller. In a career spanning almost 70 years, George Schaller has studied and worked to conserve wildlife in 32 different countries. And he was the first person to carry out studies in the wild of a whole range of iconic mammal species, including the mountain gorilla, African lion, tiger, jaguar, snow leopard, many of the wild sheep and goat species of the Himalayas, including the Himalayan ibex, the markhor, blue sheep, and Marco Polo sheep. He has also studied the Gobi bear in Mongolia, the black buck in Nilgiri Tar in India, and was the first Western scientist to study the giant panda. Over the course of his career, George Schaller has also played a role in setting up numerous national parks in protected areas around the world, including two of the largest terrestrial protected areas on the planet, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska and the Chantang Nature Reserve in the Tibetan Plateau. George Schaller is a prolific writer and has written many books about wildlife, including seven scientific books, 11 popular books, and five children books, as well as publishing numerous scientific papers. He has also received most of the top prizes in conservation, including the Indianapolis Prize awarded by the Indianapolis Zoo, the Tyler Prize from the University of Southern California, the Cosmos Prize from Japan, and the Baogang Environmental Prize from China. He has been affiliated with the Wildlife Conservation Society, which was initially known as the New York Zoological Society, since the late 1950s and continues to be affiliated with them today. George Schaller, welcome to the podcast. Well, a pleasure to meet you. And your enumeration of what I've done has to be somewhat modified. Uh, for example, a foreigner going to a country can collect useful information about an area, about the wildlife, about the problems. You give this information to the officials in the country and say, hey, this would be useful to protect. And then it's up to the country. That's all a foreigner can do. Then you return and say, have you done it? Oh, come on, let me help you a little bit more on this. 
And most countries are very open to suggestion, actually. Uh, so it's not that George Schaller goes and sets up a reserve. Uh, George Schaller, in a small way, helps a country decide whether there should be one there by providing information. Yes, indeed. It is the using of science and going and finding those areas in the first place and then using science to basically help inform the governments and be able to say, this is an amazing area and this area really does need to be protected. Well, I think you're being extremely modest. I understand exactly what you mean, but um, you have a career that's just absolutely stellar. Um, so perhaps we could start at the beginning. Could you let us know at what age you, you first realized you were becoming so interested in wildlife? And then how did you take your, presumably your hobby, and turn it into, into research? Well, you know, one doesn't know where one's inclinations come from. Even as a child, I liked to roam alone, look at wildlife, look at birds, find bird nests, or catch a lizard. Then later, I had a terrarium at home where I kept a variety of snakes and lizards, which I fed and took care of. Uh, but it was not until I got to the University of Alaska in 1951 that it sort of focused my life. My cousin had gone to university and he said, hey, do you like the out of doors? University of Alaska is the place for you. And he was 100% right. The university, whole university had 350 students on the hillside. You could look out over endless spruce forests as far as you could see. And there were students, graduate students there. They studied grayling fish. They studied mountain goats. They went out uh, hiking. Uh, so, and I thought, hey, you can make a living just going around wandering, watching animals. And then I was very fortunate in 1952, my major professor, Brian Kessel, got a grant to study birds in Northern Alaska in an area that became the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So that was my first visit to the area and there was nobody there. We crossed the whole Arctic slope by canoe to the Arctic Ocean uh, and made a bird list. If I remember right, there were 86 species, which is quite a few for that remote area. Uh, and so that continued. I studied caribou. Uh, I went to Katmai National Monument with the Park Service to look at the effect of the big Mount Katmai explosion in 1912 and how vegetation regenerated. And then uh, was suggested I really need to go to graduate school. So uh, Reiner Kessel, my major professor, had gone to the University of Wisconsin. I applied. John Emlin, the ornithologist, said, yeah, come on down. So I went there. 
And I first studied some birds, and then one day he said, uh, do you want to study gorillas? So naturally one says yes. And uh, I had married my wife Kay in 1957. In 1959, we left for East Africa, Uganda, Rwanda, Congo, and so forth, and spent over a year studying the mountain gorillas, which was a wonderful experience because the gorillas are such beautiful animals. We quickly, by meeting a certain group every day, they habituated to me. They looked around and they heard noises and said, oh, there he is again, and went on with their life. Couldn't care less about me. And so, oh, I could sleep with them at night. They build their nests in the evening. Oh, I put my sleeping bag near them. They ignore me. I sit up in the tree to watch them in daytime to see interactions. Once a female with a baby climbed up in the tree and sat in the branch next to me. And that just shows you that if you're kind to animals, they reciprocate. And I found that with all the species I've studied. I love that. Um, there was a line in the a chapter of a book I read where you said something like, wild animals aren't all that wild, it's we made them that way. And I just think it's extraordinary. You've had so many interactions with things that, at least at the time, were thought to be dangerous. Gorillas, I read when you first went to study them, they people thought they were savage. And you completely changed that perception and that idea by actually finding find the truth. What a great start to a career. Thanks. Yeah, and it's still wonderful because I uh, take the next step. A couple of Amy Vetter and Bill Weber got the tourist business going and the tourists pay a lot of money to see the gorillas uh, and most, Rhonda gave most of the money to the communities for medical services for schooling and so forth. So the local people in Rwanda were wholly for the gorillas and helped protect them. And that is the ideal with any program and that you involve the local people so they help take care of it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, but one of the things, George, that's, always interested me about your career is that you started many of the, the famous long-term mammal research projects, including the Serengeti Lion Project, the, the Mountain Gorilla Study, as you just mentioned, etc. And you would find the best place on the planet to study each species. You would then learn how to approach the animals. And as John said, back then, that often wasn't known. Some of these species were thought to be incredibly aggressive and would attack you if you approached them, et cetera. And, and you would then learn to individually identify them and spend hours studying them in the field. And I should mention to our, our guests, that, um, that, or to our audience, that you are renowned for how much time you spend doing field work. Um, so you would do all of the hard work of setting up a project, and then you would hand it over to other people and move on to 
another project. And you could easily have spent a lifetime researching any one of these species, but you chose not to. Why was it that you took that approach? Well, you could always say I have a short attention span. After three, <laughs> five years on some specific project, my mind says, now, hey, this would be interesting to do. And the ideal, of course, is to hand a project over to a national within the country that you've trained. And this is now much, much easier. Back then, it was hard to find local people that saw a future for themselves. Uh, but since then, there's been many more trained in universities and so forth. So in most countries now, you have very good local people who can do that work. And that's ideal. So um, another example of this I would love to know more about is um, the, the work you did on giant pandas. You were, I believe, the first Westerner to be invited to China to study them. And you went to Wolong, where I'd been and saw a panda um, after several days of crawling around. But how did you, what was it like to see them in the field? Um, how often would you see them there? And how on earth did you go about radio collaring a giant panda? No, the... Chinese have been extraordinarily generous to me. That's one reason I spent 40 years going over there to collaborate with them on a variety of projects. But the giant panda was difficult for both sides. They had people I worked with, most of them had never seen a foreigner and they had their own project going. Here suddenly comes a stranger and it doesn't speak the language and has his own ideas on how to do things. So one way or another, we managed to cooperate very well. Now, as far as collaring a panda, it made me extremely tense because that's a national treasure of which there are only a thousand 1,500 known to exist. And so what we did is we built big life, tra life traps out of logs and baited them with meat. And the panda smelled the meat. People think they only eat bamboo. Well, if they can get a good meal of meat, they're happy to do that. So they go into the live trap, and then it's not so difficult to jab them with the drug. Now, I was careful. I had an American, Howard Quigley, who was an expert in tranquilizing bears, and I asked him to come over, and he collaborated with us and helped uh, call a couple of bear uh, pandas, and so it worked out very well and very safely. And that way we could find them in a dense bamboo and get some idea how far they traveled and so forth. Yeah, I can't imagine the stress involved in radio exactly. collaring a giant panda. I, I get stressed when we have to collar elephants, um, and, uh, but that's nothing compared to giant pandas. Um, but when you were 
um, in the area, in your field site, how often would you actually see a, a panda? Well, I don't know. I haven't kept count. Uh, when I, they had a radio on, I tried not to disturb them so their movements wouldn't be affected. Uh, but sometimes, especially when there was snow, I could follow their tracks very precisely. And the pandas had a good nose. Uh, they could smell me, especially since I hadn't bathed for weeks. And uh, so occasionally, I'd be sitting down quietly while the pandas back in the bamboo rustling around, and the panda suddenly appears 20, 30 feet away and looks at me, and he sees me just sitting quietly. So the panda sits down quietly, puts his hand on his belly and goes to sleep. Now that's wonderful to get to that stage. And later, there was a Chinese team that started a project. Uh, one of my coworkers was from Peking University, Pan Wenxie. He started a project in another area. And us pandas got so used to people, they came and climbed on top of them. Wow. Wow. Never uh, do that. Amazing. So that just shows you how animals respond to kindness. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's, that's amazing. Wow. And, and and there was you you wrote in one of your books that there was a, a female panda that uh, whose range overlapped with the camp area, and she would sometimes come into camp and somewhat cause <laughs> cause havoc. Oh yeah. Uh, well, she wasn't afraid of the huts and the tents and so forth. So she did two things. She went into the kitchen because it smelled good and ate what she could find. Pandas have powerful jaws. So instead of taking rid of a pot, she just chewed holes in it. <laughs> but then if she wanted to sleep, there was the tent my wife Kay and I had. And if we weren't home, she'd go in the tent and lie down on the bed. <laughs> and so when I get back, Oh, there's a panda looking out the tent at me. I go away. And then I go in and clean uh, the panda's dropping off our bed. Wow. <laughs> so Goldilocks the three bears. 20 <laughs> kilos of bamboo a day. Uh, they leave a lot of droppings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <laughs> um, now... George, you were involved in a distribution study in Laos of the um, recently discovered Saola, which was really one of the most amazing and significant new mammal discoveries of the last century. Can you tell us a little bit about this astonishing animal um, and describe it for our audience and, and also um, describe your involvement with it? Well, uh, on the border between Laos and Vietnam is a mountain range called the Anamites. Uh, and 
that whole area, thanks to the endless wars that the United States started there, uh, nobody entered this, this area for years, so nobody really knew what was there. And in 1952, uh, a Vietnamese, Do Tuoc, and a Britisher, John McKinnon, went to a village in Vietnam and they saw these strange long horns, foot and a half, two foot long, very smooth. And it looked like a, a African oryx horns. And uh, they didn't know what it was. Obviously it was something new and the local people described it. And yes, it was what it came known as Saula uh, or spindle horn, because the horn looks a little like a part of a spindle that the local use. And then I decided to look around on the Laotian side. Vietnam side, I made a couple trips. Tremendously sad. So many bombed out villages, so many people, arms and legs missing. Uh, the United States particularly dropped millions of little explosive all over the countryside. So if you accidentally step on one, it'd blow your foot off. Anyway, I went to Laos uh, and we found uh, horns in those part of the world, where do you find wildlife? You find it in villages and markets. Uh, you go to village house and you look what horns are there on the wall. So we found a saola. I saw a antlers that I didn't know what they were. Uh, well, it turned out this was a giant barking deer. Barking deer, small deer that bark like dogs when they get excited. And this was a quite a big one uh, and completely new to science as well. Mm. And we found this small black barking deer. Uh, what was that? I never heard of that. Well, it turns out back in the 1920s, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's sons went over there and hunted, and they shot one of these little black parking deer, and it went to the museum in Chicago. We got a sample of that, and then compared the American Museum, George Amato compared the DNA of that museum sample to what we found, and hey, it was that little barking deer that was thought had vanished half a century before. And same with other species. Uh, some couple of Hmong tribesmen invited me to dinner and bubbling in a pot, smelling very strongly, was the head of a pig. Well, the locals said, this is the yellow pig. Uh, they used the local name. Uh, 
I didn't know of any yellow pig around there. I only knew of black pigs around there. So I took a piece of fresh meat that hadn't been boiled. I took the uh, remains of the skull. And again, took it to the Merritt Museum of Natural History for DNA. And it turns out what I ate for dinner was a pig that was first discovered in 1852. And a hundred years later, we ate it for dinner again. Nobody knew it still existed. Uh, so this kind of thing is a rather fun to do in a remote area. And that, that pig was the, the Vietnamese warty hog. Um, and do you know if they were they seen after that? Or um, do, do you know anything about, about the warty hog since then? No, I suspect they're still around. Uh, but the local people hunt so intensively because they want to eat meat, naturally. And pig has a lot of good meat. The same with Saola. Saola is slowly becoming extinct because it's so intensively hunted. Because here's this 200-pound beautiful animal with white stripes on its face and legs and so forth, and these horns. And it, it's very sad, but what can you do? They set up, horse countries set up reserves, but uh, how do you control local people that go hunting? When I was working in Vietnam, incidentally, I heard that there was one area where there was still Javan rhinoceroses. They were thought to be extinct long ago. Well, we found tracks of a couple of them in the area and records of uh, other sightings by local people. We saw remains of skin and horn. Uh, horn is such a valuable thing because it's used for medicinal purposes in Asia. So a rhino horn can be worth $10,000 or more. Anyway, we found sign of them a few days later. That was the end of it, no more. Wow. And can I just ask the, the Saula, I know that some Saula were actually held in captivity for a short time. Did, did you ever see those ones in captivity? Uh, no, uh, Alan Rubinowitz, who worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society, took photos of one that was in captivity there, but yeah. died fairly quickly because they were fed wrong. They just, people just threw a lot of hay in there, and they're not set up for that. Right, yeah, yeah, so sad. Wow, what a fascinating guy. So fascinating, in fact, that we've split this episode into two parts. And if you want to hear more of George Schaller, and I'm sure you do, then the next instalment will be released on Monday, the 16th of August. You've been listening to Memo Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at memowatching.com slash podcast. <laughs>